This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Jenny Jackson. Jenny is a vice president and executive editor at Alfred A. Knopf and joins me today to talk about her debut novel, Pineapple Street. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Jenny. Thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, thank you for being here. And I have to ask, Jenny, where does your story as an author begin? Hmm. You know, interestingly, my story as an author begins with um, a dream deferred. So I did um, want to be a writer growing up, and I studied creative writing in high school and in college, and I felt like that was my future. And then um, I graduated and realized that I, unlike my characters, did not have a trust fund. And so I needed a J-O-B that I could use to pay rent. And um, so I went to the Columbia Publishing course thinking, okay, I'll get a job in publishing so I can be close to, you know, the writing world and I'll write in my free time. But the funny thing is, one of the very first things they tell you when you start to work in book publishing is if you want to be a writer, do not take a job in book publishing. You will constantly feel like the bridesmaid, never the bride. You'll feel like everyone's stealing all the stories that you could come up with. You'll feel creatively clouded. You'll feel jealous. It's just, it, they're like, if you want to be a writer, don't work in publishing. But unfortunately, by the time I was really hearing that advice, I was already really excited about working in publishing. So I dove in with two feet and spent 20 years working as a book editor. and. Um, I maybe I missed writing, but honestly, it's it was just it suits me so well to be a book editor and to be working on other people's stories. And you get to do a lot of writing as a book editor. But then something weird happened over covid where I felt um, so lonely and I wasn't going into the office and I missed I missed seeing writers. I missed going to lunch with writers. I missed my colleagues. And I had just all these things to say that I wasn't getting to say, and I rediscovered writing. So it, it's, um, I don't know, it's not quite a backward story. It's sort of a U-shaped story, right? It starts with writing, goes to editing, come, comes back to writing. So that's kind of where my journey wandered. Well, needing that uh, notorious J-O-B. 
Um, yeah. You know, that 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 well, puts a lot of <laughs> that puts a lot of people off of of writing. You know, I know a lot of people who dreamt to be writers growing up and then, you know, they, they get to college. Maybe they major in English. And then, you know, somebody in their life does something kind of wicked and tells them, hey, don't pursue that as a dream. You know, you need to do something very practical. So yeah. go to law school. And yeah. then subsequently, I interview a lot of lawyers on this show who have yes. then come to to have written books. Um, but like just going back to your younger years when you were in high school, you said you studied creative writing. And I think that's awesome that your high school had a creative writing, you know, course. Mine did not. Yeah. Uh, I went to a very small high school. But um, do you remember what some of your early stories were? Or do you have like a teacher that really inspired you to um yes. to pursue that? Yes. And this is the weirdest coincidence on the planet. But so my high school writing teacher's name was Charlotte Gordon. And Charlotte um is a writer. And by total coincidence, we now share a literary agent. Not because she introduced me. We both met Brittany independently and landed on the same literary agent. Um, but Charlotte was that kind of teacher who all the students are just in love with, you know, the kind of teacher that people are constantly, you know, showing up at office hours and begging for extra time from and, you know, eager to be in her class and devastated to disappoint her. And she just, you know, she kind of had that magic gift as a teacher that makes you want to impress her, you know? And so the writing classes in high school, I mean, I, yes, insanely lucky. I went to a high school that had a creative writing program. I had creative writing. Every student took creative writing. And um, we really did basically like an MFA workshop style creative writing course, even, you know, from age 13 on. And in some ways, it's ridiculous to do with high school students because um, those creative writing classes, as, as I think a lot of us have inferred from like popular media depictions of the MFA thing, they can be fabulously catty and they can be really personal. And, you know, you're sharing, especially in high school, you're sharing things that are so personal because honestly, your experience of the world is like fairly limited. Um, and so it's like it ends up being sort of therapy and sort of this intense social experiment. But also you just we wrote a lot, a lot, a lot. And, you know, I ended up um, for my college applications, I ended up using a short story instead of writing an essay because I was like, I don't really know how to write an essay, but I do know how to write a story. <laughs> so I have to ask, where was this high school? Because if there is such a thing as reincarnation, I need to come back and go to this high school. It, it is a very unusual place. It's called the Waring School. It's in Beverly, Massachusetts. It's a tiny little school founded by a French couple. And it's a bilingual school. We spoke French and English. We raised goats and chickens. Um, our athletic department was pathetic. I am five foot three and I was the captain of the basketball team, if that tells you anything <laughs> about what uh, level of athleticism there was on display. Um the other sports you could take were fencing or Zen and the art of Foursquare. It was a deeply quirky place full of um, kids who were interested in the arts. We had a lot of like music prodigies, a lot of kids who went on to art school. It was it was, you know, like like the fame school, but with goats and chickens. That's awesome. And I think <laughs> that that could be like the elevator pitch for another novel. 
You know, Truly, that takes place. But I don't think mentally I could go back there. But yes, I would like someone to write it. Well, it doesn't have to be your novel. I yeah, mean, yeah, somebody yeah, else yeah, listening yeah. Could, could write this, you know, <laughs> kind of farm-based, you know, fame. They're feeding the chickens. Next thing you know, they're busting out and dance. I mean. Exactly. Yes. It could happen. Did you, did you have to kill the chickens? We did not have to kill the chickens. We just fed them. There were bees, however, which were a little, you know, a little touchy. So I had this. I had this French teacher in high school, uh, Mr. Borsier, who was a former member of a religious community. So he was like a brother somewhere, I think in Texas. And he would tell this story. And if we ever wanted to get out of learning French, which, I mean, I can't speak French to this day. You probably have a better grasp of uh, Francais. Um, a lot. The only Francais I know is chicken Francais, but... Um, he he would tell us this story about, you know, being like a monk and having they raise chickens, but they had to kill the chickens. And that, and that was their food. And if we ever wanted to get out of learning French, we would say, Mr. Borsier, tell us about the chickens. And then he would just go off. He would go off and talking about, you know, the chickens and, and subsequently the woman he met at one point in time. Wow. Do you think he was, was like great. permanently scarred by this experience? I don't know, but I wouldn't want to cross him. You know, no. I mean, if you could kill a chicken like Yellow Jackets, I mean, yes. if, you could, if you could kill a small animal like that, you could you could progress your way up to like a snarky high school student without Absolutely. a problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. French teachers are notoriously scary, too. So, no, don't cross that man. <laughs> well, what can you tell us about Pineapple Street? Maybe we should talk about the book. Oh, there is zero chickens. Zero chickens were harmed in the making of Pineapple Street. Um, it, it really grew out of um, my fascination with money, uh, with Brooklyn Heights and with family. Um, it's a story about um, three sisters, two related by blood, one related by marriage in, in the same family, the Stoftons. And they live in Brooklyn Heights, and it's about their various complicated relationships with each other and with money. Um, it's an old money family. A middle class girl has married into their midst, and she is trying to make sense of their wild ways. Um, and it's a satire. It's a it's a comic novel. I laughed a lot writing it. That's good. Well, that must have been must have been must have been therapeutic for you, particularly if you were writing it during the pandemic, which it sounds like you may have been. I was. You know, I feel like. I just sat down and made an overt effort to write something escapist and joyful. You know, um, I was, you know, bored and not seeing anybody. And I think it's really no coincidence that my characters are constantly going to parties and going out to dinner and being invited places and going to galas because I'm just like pouring wish fulfillment onto the page. I mean, and there is a hilarious amount of wish fulfillment in this book if i step back and look like there's this one character georgiana she's the baby of the family and she falls head over heels for this guy at work this older guy at work and he ends up falling for her also um and it's a little bit based on this experience i had when i was 21 my very first job out of college i worked at a not-for-profit um much like the one in the book it's doing healthcare in developing countries and there was this older guy there who I had such a crush on. And I really embarrassed myself like by the mailboxes in the same way that Georgiana does. But in real life, this guy like definitely barely knew my name and never, I'm sure, 
dedicated a single thought to me. And in the book, he like falls madly in love with her and it's a whole thing. There's like a lot of wish fulfillment in this in this book. Well, and also what, rich. So that wish fulfillment also. Well, that's one of the things that I love about writing is you can build these worlds that you've always wanted to live in, but never have been able to. And yes. you know, it's, you got a little world building there. So you're, you're, you're hanging out with like some super rich people. It sounds like the Stocktons have some cash, old yes. money, old money yes. cash. Yes. Um, I imagine they play a lot of tennis. They do. They do. I mean, New York is wild. So I grew up, uh, you know, by in, in Massachusetts in a small town. And when I moved to New York, I was really just shocked by the level of wealth that you can occasionally see here. You know, it's I, there's nothing like it in in my part of Massachusetts. And the funny thing about working in book publishing is that, you know, your starting salary is like these days, I think it's like forty seven thousand dollars in my day. It was, you know, uh, a lot less. And yet so you're you know, you're eating like soup out of a can for dinner. But you get invited into these homes. You get invited to these parties. You just get this view into upper crust New York that is um, really eye-opening for a young person. And it's something that I've seen a lot living in Brooklyn Heights. I mean, one of the fun things about writing Pineapple Street and setting this book in Brooklyn Heights is that I think um, there is like a fair amount aware of awareness culturally of Manhattan as this, you know, like playground for the rich. And whether it's like Gossip Girl or Sex in the City or whatever, we've seen a lot of, um, you know, the the haves and the have a lot mores in Manhattan. Brooklyn Heights is sort of this like wild hidden gem that's been around, you know, forever as a um an enclave of the wealthy in Brooklyn. It's known as America's first suburb. And um, and I was living on Pineapple Street writing the book. I live here in Brooklyn Heights. And um, you know, from like the celebrity sightings to I sent my kids to the local preschool. And the local preschool auction was definitely a base for the auction scene in this book because there were celebrity chefs and there were, you know, NBA basketball stars and all these other parents at the preschool. And so, like, even going to the school carnival, they're auctioning off, like, um, like Botox treatments and, like, golf trips at, like, the most elite Hamptons clubs. And they were auctioning off a child-sized Tesla. And, I mean, just, like, eye-popping banana stuff nestled into my community, you know? And so I just have felt that hilarious dissonance for a long time. And I wanted to write into it with the book and kind of um, pull back the curtain on a neighborhood of Brooklyn that isn't as well known as Manhattan. Sure. Sure. I mean, I remember, you know, you mentioned starting salaries and publishing. My starting salary, I started in advertising a long time ago. And uh, the number started with a two and there wasn't a large number next to it. Oh, <laughs> so oh like, yeah. I mean, my my commute into the city was, you know, almost as much as I was bringing in after taxes and all that stuff. But, you know, cut to like 20 plus years later, last summer, I got invited to, you know, this literary event. It was Biogra Biographer International Association or something like that. Uh, one of the guests I had on the show was gracious enough to to invite me. And I opened the door. Kitty Kelly is right there. 
you know, the famous, oh, you know, well, she's a biographer. Sinatra. Oh, she's she, yeah. And she is showing me around. I mean, who the hell am I? But this apartment I'm in, like off of Central Park West, I'm like, I've only I've only read about these places, you know, yes. and then all of a sudden you're standing in and I'm like, well, this is motivation, you yes. know, and then I think oh to gosh, myself, I, yeah. I should have been born into money and now I'm mad at my dad. So I know. You know. Same. I went to one of those parties um, for for an author thrown by some. Yeah, some um, some incredibly gracious host. And they had this thing where um, a wall pulled back in their living room to reveal a, a bar and caterers setup. So this is purely for entertaining. It's like they have sacrificed four feet by 20 feet in their apartment that they use only when having catered events. I mean, like, I, I, I have never, I've had that New York dream a million times where you discover a room in your apartment that you never knew existed because I have been like so starved for space for 20 years. And they literally just had this like hidden wall in their apartment. So what I've learned today um, is that if there is reincarnation, I need to come back and go to your high school and then, but also choose to be born into like a very wealthy family. I think so, but I'm going to caution you there. Mm. Because one of the things that I have been um, discovering and messing around with in in researching and writing Pineapple Street is that being born into a wealthy family does not always mean that you have access to money. And it does not always mean that you get to live guilt-free. So one of the things that I, I mean, I ended up doing a lot of trusts and estate law research, which sounds, I know, super sexy. And I'm surprised, honestly, the publisher didn't write a lot about that in the selling copy because who wouldn't want to read a novel about tax law? But um, it's it was fascinating because there is there are these elaborate systems created by the lawyers of the super rich to make sure that um, the inheritors can't just squander away their money. And so there is part of the book where one of the characters decides, I mean, I don't want to spoil too much, but one of the characters wants access to her fortune and realizes that in theory, the money is hers, but in practice, she can't touch it because there are so many systems in place to keep these kids from, you know, messing it up, whether it's like, you know, they become addicted to drugs or they have a, you know, mental health crisis or whatever it is. And so there's this bizarre thing. And, you know, Abigail Disney, um, who, you know, the heir to the Disney fortune has written these fascinating pieces about her own relationship with inherited money. And she talks about the way in which you are sort of like a steward of the money, but it is not meant for you. You're meant to protect your generational wealth and just pass it on to future generations. And you do that if you are, you know, a Disney or a Bush or, you know, whatever, a Mortimer. You um, you marry somebody else rich so that it doesn't dilute the pot. And then you live only off the interest and you never touch the principal. And that gets passed down to your children. And this is why billionaires get richer and richer. And why right now we're on the edge of what is called the great wealth transfer because the boomers, when they die, are going to be passing down more money to their children than has ever been passed down in the history of America. 
So I think I can live with it, though. I mean, I think I can live with living off the interest, you know. As, no, you're would, right. It's not that sad. I, I certainly would worry less. And, and maybe, you know, maybe the play is to not know you have that money until you're older. You know, yes. maybe maybe that's it. Maybe you don't know what you have. I, I don't know. I think that that's right. I mean, you do hear about Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. And, you know, Warren Buffett talks about how life shouldn't be dictated by your membership to the Lucky Sperm Club. So it shouldn't just be by who your parents are. And Bill Gates very abstemiously said he will. I mean, I admire him. I'm messing around. But he said he's only going to give his children $10 million each because more than that is too much. I mean, pretty funny. Like, I'd still be glad if he were my dad and gave me $10 million. But there is this awareness among the super wealthy that if you give your kids millions and millions of dollars at a young age, there's no motivation for them. Like, honestly, why would I have taken my job if I didn't have to? But I'm really glad I did. It's given me like a whole life of intellectual. I know that sounds Pollyanna-ish to be like, no, no, it's actually good to work. But honestly, I think that work gives us a sense of purpose. And if you if you feel like anything you could do over the course of 10 years of work is not going to even be a drop in the bucket compared to what your grandfather put in, you know, what you might win or lose in the market in a week. Like, why would you work, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, writing was a dream deferred. I'm curious, do you think you could have written a novel, you know, that has gotten this much acclaim? And and of course, your book has gotten a lot of acclaim. Um, Could you have written this novel 20 years ago? Or did you need that time in order to write, you know, something, you know, that, that hit this big? Uh, uh, I'm so glad I waited. You know, I, I am, gosh, from where I sit, like, it's actually impossible to wish anything happened differently. But I think that, I think that being an editor was the most incredible writing education that I ever could have asked for. And instead of paying for that education, I have been paid to get that education. But I, um, you know, I learned an incredible amount from the writers that I work with. And I can I can pinpoint exactly who I learned what from, you know, but I have like, you know, I worked very closely with Kevin Kwan, who wrote the Crazy Rich Asians books. And Kevin does this thing where he puts a post-it note above his desk that he has written the word joy on. And it's a reminder that with every scene, he wants to infuse his book and the reader with joy. And I did that same, that was my exact goal also. And I kept that at the front of my mind. Kevin also does this magical thing where he um, takes a place in his work and he just pumps up the volume on it. If you went to Singapore, if you went to Shanghai, if you went to Hong Kong, if you went to any of the incredible places that he writes about in his books, to be honest, you might be a little bit confused because Kevin has skimmed the cream off the top and served the cream. And so you don't really realize that the real place, well, wonderful, Kevin is giving you a fluffier, creamier version of that place. And I did that with Brooklyn Heights, too. I just jacked up the volume on the place. You know, I didn't reveal that, like, actually every Tuesday, like, the local grocery store is just full of very normal old people using their senior citizen discounts. I'm like, that's not sexy. That's not going in the book. You know, so I learned all that from Kevin. Um, I work really closely with Chris Bajalian, who wrote The Flight Attendant and has had 
all these huge bestsellers. And I still don't understand how Chris does this because Chris, he hammers out a bestseller every year and a half. I'm like, oh, well, it only took me 20 years to, you know, come out with a book, but every year and a half from Chris. And he, um, he has given me some of the best advice ever. He said every single one of his 25 books has tried to kill itself at some point. And so I found that to be like the most inspiring piece of advice because I think I, I'm sure a lot of writers listen to your show and, you know, I'm not sure I feel like in the position to add, to give people a ton of advice since I've only written one book, but one piece of advice I think is so meaningful is like, you can't give up when you get stuck because a guy who has written 25 bestsellers has that happen to him every single time. You will get stuck and it's fine to put it down for a while. And, you know, Julia Glass wrote half of Three Junes, put it down for 10 years, picked it up, finished it and won the National Book Award. Like it doesn't necessarily mean you need to pick it up next week. But I think there is so much. Um, there is so much temptation when you get stuck to drop it and move on. But like, pick it back up. Go take another look. Everything tries to kill itself. Pick it back up. So I learned that from Chris. Anyway, I could go on, but I just feel like I've learned these incredibly valuable lessons from J. Courtney Sullivan, who wrote Maine and um, Friends and Strangers. She taught me how to write rotating point of view. That's something I do in Pineapple Street. You're going from close person, um, third point of view in rotating chapters. And I've come up with the term, and maybe I stole this from someone, the lazy Susan approach to narration, where it's just like, oh, and now this person, and now that person. But I learned that from Courtney. And so I feel like, no, no way in hell could I have written this 20 years ago because I had to learn so much from my writers. Yeah. I mean, you know, it sounds like what started with, who was it, Charlotte uh, back in, in high school, right? You know, she starts it and then all of these writers you've had the, you know, the the honor and, and joy and, and privilege to work with, you know, taught you other things along the way. And then boom, here we have uh, Pineapple yeah. Street. So, you know, what's so interesting also is that when you look through acknowledgments in the back of different writers books, yeah, you see their editor, you see their friends, you see their parents, whatever. You oftentimes see another writer's name and you're like, how are they connected? And it's been fascinating to realize how many writers read for each other and give each other notes. And I've just started to be invited by writers who I don't work with professionally to um, start sharing. And that is the coolest thing, you know, to get to be in a little tiny two-person MFA class with a writer you admire. Like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty jazzed about it, but I'm also like semi-terrified. But I think it could be cool. No, it sounds it sounds awesome. Well, you know, one of the ways I also like to get to know my guests on A Corking Story is to ask about pop culture. So I am very curious, Jenny, when you were growing up, did you have anything that you really enjoyed watching on television? Oh, um, so this is so weird. And I, I have no idea how this informed anything. But <laughs> again, I'm incredibly obsessed with Gilligan's Island, which I know is nothing so wrong with that. Bananas. Well, like it was the era of Nick at Night, you know, and so Nickelodeon had all those great old shows on reruns. And so I'm not old enough that I was like literally watching Gilligan's Island in real time, but they would play it at um, eight in the morning. And when I was in middle school, I would set my alarm. My mom would go to work. I would set my alarm, wake up, pour a bowl of cereal, watch Gilligan's Island and then go back to bed. That's like that was my happy place. I think I loved the in, in a weird way, 
Gilligan's Island is like a, a locked room mystery without the mystery. You just have this tiny cast of characters. And every single time, it's like the, the episode has to rotate in this tiny group in this one setting. And there's something like kind of wonderful about that. It, it, it's kind of a simple show in many ways. But, you know, thinking about it through the lens of, again, now somebody who's not watching it on Nick at Night, somebody who's older. I mean, if the professor can make a radio out of coconuts, yeah. right? Why yeah. not fix the boat? Like, why can't we fix the boat? Really a good point here. And and then, you know, the other the other problem I have with it, there were certain episodes where like these native islanders would like come through and they were like cannibals, right? And like, like how come they cringe. never feasted off of, you know, Lovey and Thurston Howell the third? I mean, you figured they'd oh be the God. first two to go because they were a little bit of the older folks. I like can't believe you're reminding me of this because now I feel like I'm way too afraid to ever watch it again because that's wildly offensive. And oh, obviously I didn't absolutely that in 1993. Um, I also think there's like this the hilarious like Ginger and Marianne thing, which is really just a Betty and Veronica reboot, which I think is one of the like classic tropes of like my formative years oh there are two kinds of women you can be you know <laughs> you're either a marianne or a ginger or you're a betty or a veronica and like obviously that's like very gross and painful now and yet loved it or a betty or a wilma Flintstone. i mean oh my gosh same again you know? there you yeah. go there you go how about how about music growing up what'd you like to listen to oh well this is um this is awkward but when i was a kid i was a, a big music snob, and B, um, didn't really like female musicians. I thought I was so cool because I listened to like male indie rock bands, like Pavement was my favorite band. And I was like, ew, I don't like Ani. Ew, I don't like the Indigo Girls. And then I went to college and I was like, oh, no, wait, actually, I'm obsessed with the Indigo Girls. And <laughs> They're great. I got the chip off my shoulder. But I went through that high school phase where I um I only read like Russell Banks and Paul Auster and like all the guys and I listened to all the guys and which is just hilarious now because I think 80% of my the list I publish is women. Um what about things you've learned about yourself uh, as an author? What have you learned about yourself kind of going through this? I mean obviously you you've worked with many authors as they're going through their writing journeys. How about going through your own writing journey? What did you learn about yourself? You know, I think that the the thing you can't know until you're in it is um, how you're going to draw your lines as a fiction writer between which stories you are allowed to tell and which you might hurt the feelings of people around you or tell a secret that isn't yours or betray someone through fiction. And, you know, I um, I wrote something before Pineapple Street that I that I can't publish because it shares too many other people's secrets. And I wrote it just for myself. But realizing that I couldn't made me write Pineapple Street with an absolute clear eye about how as a writer at this point in my life, I'm not willing to um, to damage my personal personal relationships for my writing. I don't think that'll always be true. And I don't think that Everybody, I don't think by any means that everybody else should abide by that rule. But that was an interesting thing for me to learn about myself, that my personal relationships with my family and my friends and my loved ones comes first and that I can't write anything that exposes anybody I love. 
Yeah. Yeah. But you probably had to get that out of your system first. I, I had to. Right? I had to. And, a... you know, once everybody's dead, like when I'm in my 90s or when I don't care anymore, I'm just going to publish it. So, like, watch this space in 50 years because I got a bomb to set off. <laughs> just well, kidding. <laughs> I'll have you back on in 50 years and we can talk about it. If, we, if there's any remote chance we remembered this conversation when we're that old. But Right. What about, uh, do you have a favorite place to read? Uh, yes. I actually really like to read on the Brooklyn Heights Promenade. It Because first of all, it's a little bit of a CNBC. And so the Brooklyn Heights Promenade is this gorgeous park that overlooks the bluff down from Brooklyn Heights across the East River to Manhattan. And it's like this neighborhood spot. There are benches under trees. All the most fabulous mansions in Brooklyn Heights are along there looking out over the river. And the people in my neighborhood are constantly walking up and down the promenade. Plus, tourists have to come and check the promenade. And then there are like these amazing old people in my neighborhood who make it their daily exercise to walk up and down the promenade. So it's a great place to read because, A, you get to be seen there reading your book, which always is, I don't know, it's like the ultimate status thing. Like, I'm reading this book here on the promenade. B, you get to like do a little people watching between chapters. And C, you're sitting in like one of the most beautiful places in New York with your book. There you go. What about a favorite place to write? Mm -hmm. This is a disaster. <laughs> I I write, I just don't have an office where I have good writing vibes. Like I'm sitting right now in my husband's office, but I don't write in here. And I feel like, I, I, I don't know, it's not, it's not my writing vibes. Um, so I write at the dining room table, which is a disaster because I have two small children who are constantly coming up and trying to talk about Pokemon while I'm writing. It's deadly. <laughs> we have to call it the P word in our house because like, I do not want to hear about Pokemon. Um, I write on the closed toilet lid in the bathroom while my kids are in the bath. I write on my phone in the car. I write on my phone in the subway. I occasionally write at a table in the library. Um, but honestly, it's a mess. I like no professional writer does this. I'm a mess. I need to, I need a place to write, but I don't know what it's going to be. Uh, last up, and this is always the, uh, the probably one of the more challenging questions I ask, which is um, if you could go back in time, I, I call this the uh, the letter to me or dear younger me. If you could write a dear younger me letter to your younger self, you know, maybe it was that person, you know, feeding the chickens and and, you know, playing basketball at five, three. Um, what would you tell your younger self? What kind of words of advice would you give your younger self? OK, well, number one is do not leave your journals at your parents' house when you move away. Because I had years worth of journals that I left at my parents' house. Obviously, my mother read them. Uh, and that's mostly fine. But then my parents' house got hit by lightning. They had a fire and the journals are gone. And I don't know how much in them, like, I mean, I'm sure it was like mostly me talking about who I had a crush on or something like mortifying. But um, I wish I still had those. The the second is to keep going with the journals, but really be better about holding on to my writing because like, I don't even know where half this stuff is. And since I wasn't taking myself seriously as a writer, I've been like an awful archiver of my own work. So I wish I could tell myself to like have the respect for your work to keep track of it after you write it. Um, and then the other piece is like the thing every writer knows, but I probably didn't know when I was younger, which is it's all material. 
So like somebody breaks your heart. So someone treats you like garbage. So you spend a summer in France, super lonely and hungry. Like it's all material. It's going to work its way into something. So like suck it up. Right. You know, it, it's kind of along the lines of like everything happens for a reason, which I can't stand when people say totally. that to me because it's totally. usually when something really shitty has happened. Yeah. Um, or someone breaks your heart or something. But, yeah. um, but you're right. I mean, you can lean into that and you can learn from it and, and use it at some point in time. Um, exactly. It's all a story. And then best of all, if someone treats you really shabbily, you put them in a book and they won't ever come after you because they won't want to admit that it was them. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Wicked laugh. The writer's revenge. Totally. It's all uh, we got. <laughs> so, uh, Jenny Jackson, this has been a fun conversation. Pineapple Street, I imagine, is available wherever books are sold, but you can tell me otherwise. It is. All right. And Jenny, do you have a website, social media handles you want to share if people want to reach out and follow you? Yeah, the best place to find me is at Jenny Jackson Pineapple on Instagram. And I read my DMs and I would love to hear from you. There you go. So slide into those DMs. Jenny, thank you for stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.